0: This is Persuasion in Business hosted by me, Dr. Mindy Weinstein. I'm a marketing researcher, the author of The Power of Scarcity, a professor, and a marketer myself. In this podcast, you'll discover practical tools based on psychology you can use to improve your business, sales, and career today. In this episode of Persuasion in Business, I'm gonna be talking about goal setting. And I understand that you probably already heard a lot about setting goals. However, what I'm gonna share with you are a few things that have really helped me along the way and all of these things are based on psychology. Is it possible to set goals in a way that increases the chances of success? Well, today I have your answer. In this episode of Persuasion in Business, I'm gonna get into the science behind goal setting and how you can increase your odds of achieving those goals. In a previous episode, I talked about how goals are tied to the intensity of emotions that we experience. But there's more going on with goal setting and achieving, so I wanted to focus an entire episode on the subject. I'm also going to get more personal than i have in the past so just be prepared recently i found some goals that i wrote in 2003. i had been going through a box i was trying to find something for my teenage son my 16 year old and i found this old like planner that i apparently was using in 2003. i had a piece of paper in there that said career goals it was actually dated january 20th 2003. i had seven. And looking at it now, I'm laughing. I had seven different goals listed. Apparently at one point in time, I crossed one out. Not sure why. I don't remember. I mean, this was almost 20 years ago. But what was interesting about this is that I don't even remember writing them. I don't even remember checking them off. But when I found this list, some were checked off. A couple of them weren't checked off, but they are things that I have achieved. Now, it took me almost 19 years to achieve some of them, but it just got me thinking about how powerful setting goals really is. And that's what I wanna talk about today. But I know you've probably heard a lot of things up to this point about setting goals and all of that. What I wanna get into is more of the science behind it and some of the things you can actually do that are very practical to help you. I'm gonna read you some of these goals that I had written down obtain my MBA. Well, that's something I did do, uh, obtain a doctoral degree. I recently did that. So when I say recently, about a year or so ago, the funny thing about it was in 2003, my younger self didn't know how to spell doctoral. I actually misspelled that word. Here's a, Here's a nice encouragement for you. You don't actually have to be able to spell the degree, apparently, to be able to achieve it. I also have on here, you know, build a real estate business, which that was short lived, but it was something I did. I work as a professor. So that I actually am doing now. I launch a product or business and write a book. Some of these things, as I mentioned, took me well over a decade to be able to accomplish, almost into two decades. But I have to look at this and say, you know what? I need to be okay with that. If you're wondering well how can you stay motivated if it takes that long to achieve some of the goals that you might have it's because of the reticular activating system yeah i really did just say reticular activating system that is truly what it's called yes it's a mouthful but don't worry i'm going to explain it to you and i'm going to give you some practical tips But before I get into that, I do want to share a little bit more of my personal story because it gives some context into why I wrote these goals in 2003. When I was 14 years old, I was diagnosed with a condition called hydrocephalus. If you don't know what that is, it's a term that just means water on the brain. Apparently, I had been born with a defect in my brain where the fluid that all of us have that runs through your brain would get backed up. I guess that's the easiest way to say it in my brain. Because of that, I would get massive headaches. And I had these awful debilitating headaches for so many years. But I didn't know any different. My head, when it would hurt, it would feel like it was going to explode. And I thought that was pretty normal. When I was a kid, I'd get these headaches. and But Really, none of the headaches ever lasted long enough for any doctors to be overly concerned. Then when I was 14 years old in the summer, I woke up with a massive headache. And it was so bad that I couldn't even stay awake. I kept falling asleep and all of that. My parents ended up taking me to the hospital. It was found that my brain had swelled four times the normal size, and I had fluid on the brain. At that point, I was actually in a coma. The doctors prepared my parents that there was a very good chance I wouldn't make it because it had progressed so much at that point, I was in jeopardy. Now at the time, just so you know, uh, even though I had these headaches my whole life, no one knew that there was something actually going on that I had a condition like this. I will fast forward the story, but uh, I ended up getting diagnosed with hydrocephalus and it was determined that a ventricle in my brain was very small and it was a birth defect. Because of that, I would have these backups of fluid, and that's why I would get those headaches. That's also why my brain had swelled, and that's also why I was in this life-and-death situation. At the time, the surgeon ended up putting in a shunt. So That's basically just a tube that goes into your brain, and it helps release some of that fluid. So that was when I was 14, and that was shocking. It's already hard enough when you're a teenager and you're trying to find your way, but I remember at that time thinking like, wow, I shouldn't even be alive. The fact that I didn't have any side effects was a miracle. About only 10% of the people who had that severe of a case as I did came out like I did, meaning I didn't have any long-lasting repercussions from the condition. But at 14, I remember thinking, okay, I need to make sure that I really focus on what's important in life and, you know, set goals and think about the future. I started doing that even at 14. I will tell you over those years, I stayed in good health. I had X-rays done every single year, and always got a "Hey, everything's great!" (laughs) thumbs up from the doctors. Now I had restricted activities. I remember when I was like 15 or 16, being so upset because I was not allowed to ride roller coasters, and that was because of my condition. Which is really funny looking back that that's what I was so upset about. Should just been happy to be alive, but no, I focused on the fact that I could not ride a roller coaster. So. Years went by and I was fine. And then when I was 20 years old, I actually did get married at 20. I was a very young bride. But at 20 years old, uh, right before my wedding, my mom sat my husband to be down and said, hey, listen, these are the signs you need to look out for if, you know, my condition comes back. You know, These are the type of headaches, these are the type of symptoms, all of that. I remember telling um, my husband-to-be at the time, Mike, I just said, oh, don't worry about it, I've been fine for all these years. The thing was, I had been fine. We got married and one month into marriage, I started getting headaches and they were really bad. So I went to go see a neurologist and found out that the shunt I had was blocked and I was gonna need to have surgery again. I was really scared. I was just blown away, not in a good way, blown away um, the fact that I was now dealing with this again and I was a young bride only a month in. So for better or for worse, started pretty early for us. But the surgery was okay. So I ended up having the shunt replaced and, and was okay and it wasn't as major of a surgery as the first one I had had. I remember then I At 20, all of a sudden I was faced again with, wow, okay, here I'm facing this situation, really how much time do I have in my life? And I started to really think about that a lot. Well, I remember at the time thinking, I need to do something really meaningful and I decided I was gonna be a lawyer, which I'm not a lawyer now. So I think you know how that story goes. I decided that I was going to go to law school and I started studying for my LSAT. I studied for it for a month straight. This was like a few months after that surgery. And I was all set to take the LSAT and I started to get sick. This time I had different symptoms, but they started to continue, but nothing involving my head per se. So there was one day that my husband decided to stay home from work because I was kind of acting funny and not feeling that great. And my condition became the worst it had ever been. All those things that my mom had sat him down to look at in terms of symptoms, I was experiencing all of them. So he took me to the hospital and sure enough, the shunt had failed. But even worse than that, it'd become infected, which you don't want an infection in your brain. Trust me, not a good thing. But I was out of it. I was already slipping into a coma. Here I was in another situation where the doctors weren't really sure if I was going to survive because it was that bad. Well, I'm going to spare you all the details for now. Maybe in a later time, I'll share more. But I ended up having two surgeries. I ended up with one surgery that got rid of the shunt. It's been 20 years, over 20 years, actually, since I had that surgery. It's still a very new surgery. And so not many people have had it. And I'm one of the cases that they do watch to see how I'm going to be. But here I am again, 20 plus years later and I'm doing good and I haven't had any issues. I'm so thankful and blessed for that. But that does lead me back full circle to goals. The first surgery, I was 14. The second surgery, I was 20. The third surgery, I was, and fourth surgery, I was um, nearly 21. Here, I was a young person faced with a situation of, I don't know how long I have. And actually, it did become a bit of an obsession for me when I was 21, but I became really, really goal-oriented because I thought, I don't know how much time I'm gonna have. I know I had the surgery that's still fairly new. I needed to make the most of every day. That's where I got into very heavily on the goal setting. So that gives you some context because that was 2001. This list that I wrote was 2003. So very much on my mind, I was always thinking about goals. I had personal goals, but what I had here and what I read to you, those are my career goals specifically. That's what I wanted to talk about today, but I wanted to give you some context into why I wrote those and how those goals really stuck with me over the years. Now let's start from the beginning because I want to go over the definition of goals. So we are all on the same page. Dr. Elliot Berkman, a psychology researcher gave a really good definition of goals that I like. He defined a goal as any desired outcome that wouldn't otherwise happen without some kind of intervention. Berkman refers to a goal as a detour from the path of least resistance. So goals are usually things we want but have difficulty achieving even when we know we can. If it wasn't difficult to achieve, we wouldn't need a goal in the first place. Goals involve behavior change, and I'm not talking about engaging in a certain behavior, but instead a new behavior that's hard. To pursue a goal means you have to do something different than what was done before. And there's been several studies that have found that specific goals like Mike and Mindy will save $1,000 by June, lead to greater effort and success than vague goals, like Mike and Mindy will save money. It's not specific enough. If we save a dollar, did we meet that goal? Research has also shown that challenging goals are more motivating than goals that are either too easy or too hard. That has to do with emotion, really emotional intensity. If something is too easy, there's really not that much emotions involved as we're trying to achieve it. But if it's too difficult, meaning the likelihood of us ever achieving it is slim to none, we're also not going to put that much emotion into it. There are a few principles at work when it comes to successful goal setting, which is based on psychological and neurological research. That is really what I wanna talk about and give you some pointers on what you can do. These are things that I've also been able to do with some of my goals. And also, just so you know, I want to be totally transparent. I did read over my goals to you, but there was one on there that I had actually scribbled out and it's really hard for me to even read, but I actually wrote for my goal to have my PhD by the time I was 28. So I didn't meet that goal. So sometime in my life, I crossed it out. I don't even remember, but you know, again, I did it decades later. And some of that has to do with the principles I'm about to explain. When we think about goal setting and achieving those goals, there are three things that I want you to think about. One is a theory known as expectancy value, and that states that if we expect to reach goals and see a purpose in reaching them, our chances of achieving them go up. There's another principle. It's implementation intentions, and those strengthen the probability of goal achievement. And finally, neuroscience neuroscience shows that there is an area of our brain that's focused on regulating our goal-setting actions. And all of these principles are important to know as you're setting your goals and working on achieving them because there's nuances that will really make a difference on whether you're successful or not. So let me get into the first one. Expectancy value theory, it states that if we expect to reach goals and see a purpose in reaching them, our chances to achieve them go up. This theory suggests that motivation for a given behavior or action is a result of two things. Expectancy, that really means how probable is it that we're gonna be able to actually achieve that goal through a behavior or action. Then value, that's the second thing. And that's how much you value that desired outcome. If you think about it, it actually becomes an equation. Motivation equals expectancy times value. So based on this theory, goals have a greater chance of being achieved if we expect to reach them and if we see a purpose in reaching them. There's another theory that is really part of this whole principle. It's called self-determination theory. According to this theory, the most motivating purposes for reaching goals have to do with helping others, enhancing relationships, expressing one's genuine self, enhancing health, developing talents, and learning. These particular goals often result in less anxiety and more enjoyment as you're pursuing those goals and a greater sense of achievement. Now this is great in all, understanding expectancy times value, and that's gonna really motivate us, but there's actually something else that you can do, and this is based on psychology that will really help improve the success of achieving your goals, and that is implementation intentions implementation intentions are the if then plans that specify when where and how we'll attempt certain goals most goals when we think about them it's i intend to do x y or z implementation intentions are different it's in that if then format so it might be something like if opportunity y occurs then i will perform goal directed response z right that's super clear i know it's not so let me give you an example Let's say that you have a goal to go on vacation next year with your family. If you intend to save money for a vacation, you'll avoid buying unnecessary things by forming the plan. If I'm tempted to buy unnecessary clothing, then I will think about my vacation. So that's an if then, if I, I'm gonna repeat that. If I am tempted to buy unnecessary clothing, then i will think about my vacation and you can swap clothing with anything it could be like unnecessary meals out or it could be unnecessary electronics whatever it is that's your vice you know just put that there but you notice there's a formula it's if then an analysis of 94 studies provided evidence that implementation intentions do affect outcomes if then plans were successful in the study in achieving a wide variety of desired outcomes including consumer goals and environmental goals our researchers believe that implementation intentions are effective because they create a sense of commitment to an intended behavior there was a study that showed the effectiveness of implementation intentions The research team asked Dutch students to create implementation intentions detailing when, where, and how to travel to five locations around the city. So they were supposed to really think about that ahead of time. The participants were then seated in front of a computer screen and shown those locations. They were asked to indicate as fast as they could what way they would take to get there. Researchers found that the participants who formed that if-then plan selected the way in which they would get to the locations a lot faster than participants who did not form a plan. So it just shows that visualizing and thinking about the if-then helps us stay focused and helps us quickly make a plan of action. All of this is good. Implementation, intentions, you know, thinking about how can you do an if-then plan. So if you're creating goals for yourself, whether they're long-term or short-term, think about if. This happens, then I will do this to help keep you on that track to achieve those goals. I want to get into our third principle, though, because that really goes into what's happening in the brain. And I think that's always really important to understand, because if you understand the activity within the brain and how it works, it will really help you as you're considering goals and how to achieve them. Neuroscience has shown that there is an area of our brain focused on regulating our goal-setting actions. Actually, there's multiple areas within the brain and it really depends on whether it's a short-term goal or a long-term goal and how difficult it's going to be to achieve that goal. I'm actually going to focus specifically on one part of the brain that I actually already mentioned. That's the reticular activating system. This is a part of the brain that plays a crucial role in controlling our goal setting actions. This system's a cluster of cells that can be found at the base of the brain. It processes all the information related to the things that need our attention. What's so interesting about the system is that it gives us signs. There was an example given by some researchers that I think is a really great way to think about this. An example they gave was if a person has a goal to start a family, that person is likely to see more couples and families around him or her. This occurs because the activation of the reticular activating system before deciding to start a family, the system would naturally have filtered out any such information. The person may have seen so many couples walking past, you know, him or her earlier, but never really paid attention until that person decided to get married themselves. Have you ever had this happen before to you? I have, and I think of a situation where I had the goal of buying a new car. As I was considering the types of cars I might wanna get, I made the goal to get a particular make and model. I was just really waiting until I could find a pre-owned version of that car. But as soon as I had that goal, all of a sudden I felt like everywhere I went, I saw that car. And that's because my brain was filtering out other information and only really showing me what I was focused on and what my goal was. This whole idea of the reticular activating system, I know that sounds very probably more medical than anything else, but it actually leads us right into the practical application of goal setting because this particular system functions in two ways when it comes to goal setting, and understanding this is going to make the difference between just setting goals and actually achieving those goals. The first one, And it's not gonna be something earth shattering because you've probably heard it before, but it's actually writing your goals down. You might've heard that, you know, like I said, in different talks and things where people are saying, oh, to achieve your goals, you gotta write them down. But there's actually science to that, and that is involving that reticular activating system. When you write down your goals using pen and paper and being able to see them written in clear words before you, that's going to trigger the functions of that system, which is going to ensure that we actually go for it. I might not have consciously remembered these goals that I wrote down in 2003, or even the times that I went back to revisit them, but under the surface, subconsciously, my brain remembered, and I would take steps to reach these goals. Some of them took a very long time, but The brain, because of that act of putting it on pen and paper, it engaged that system to ensure that I did go for these goals. Now, the second thing, and this is very practical too, and and not earth shattering, but I want you to understand the science behind it. It's planning your goals. That's where your imagination comes in. That's essential when it comes to goal setting and achieving them. Research has shown over and over again that people who have the power to visualize their goals before setting their actions, actually have a higher activation at the brain level, meaning they're more likely to achieve those goals. That's why you often hear of people talking about like vision boards or putting a picture that represents your goal. It's because that helps that imagination process and helps you visualize your goal. And it's all still tied to that reticular activating system that I mentioned to you. Neurologists who focus on the science of goal setting have also found that the brain can't distinguish between reality and our imagination, which means when we give ourselves a visual of the goal we want to achieve, meaning we imagine it or we put a picture in front of us, our mind starts to believe it to be real, which means we'll take the steps and the actions to actually achieve those goals. I know there was a lot that we've covered so far, but I want to just wrap it up with just, again, those actionable things you can do. Follow the if-then plan. That's the implementation intentions. Write down your goals. Put it to pen and paper. Put it somewhere safe. Um, I'm fortunate that I happen to find my goals in a box. I don't know how long they've been in that box, but uh, still, the actual process of writing those goals down had an impact on me. Then finally plan those goals, visualize them, imagine you achieving them, whatever that means to you, whether that means putting a picture where you can see it, or it just means in your mind playing it through what it's going to look like to actually have that goal achieved. All of what we have talked about, this applies with our business goals, it applies with our personal goals. And it is very much tied to psychology and motivation and what's going to get us to take action. Going back to my question I originally posed, it is possible to set goals in a way that increases the chances of success. Join us for the next episode as we dive into more on the psychology of persuasion. Well, you certainly have heard quite a bit about my personal story and how I approach goal setting, but I would love to hear from you. Let's continue the conversation in the Persuasion and Business Forum and feel free to share what works for you as you pursue your own goals and it's an opportunity to learn from others. Visit persuasionnextsteps.com. Be sure to also subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform and follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn or Instagram.